Welcome to the Poetry Questions TPQ20, where we sit down with your favorite authors to talk about passions, process, pitfalls, and poetry. My name is Chris Margolin. Let's expand the conversation. Hello, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I am doing all right. It was a, definitely a, a hectic Monday as a, I teach seventh grade. So my students are, uh, we now have four Mondays left of the school year. And, uh, so the, ready the truth, to go. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to hop on TPQ20 today. Um, I'm really excited to have you on here. And uh, as we always like to start things off by saying, we know who you are, but our audience may be new to you. So if you were to give the bio that's not going to be on the back of the West or a real toad, uh, who would you say you are? Well, I'm a poet and writer originally from Seattle. I'm mixed race. I'm half Chinese, half Norwegian, which I think is important based on a lot of things that I've written about. But um, I'm sort of leaving poetry now. I'm actually going to be directing the American West Center at the University of Utah. So um, I'm sort of somebody who always kind of keeps moving in a very different, maybe contrary direction to where else, <laughs> where else anyone else goes. Yeah. Well, you've definitely, I mean, you've definitely lived in in multiple genres over the course of your career. I mean, from photo essays to, you know, to poetry, to prose and, and the West. And it's, it sounds like quite the, uh, quite the incredible project. Um, I'm really curious how you got started with where did the the love of railroads come from uh, it was forced upon me actually because <laughs> i was utah's poet laureate and um they came to me the spike 150 uh commission uh it was a spike 150 committee which is was working with the state of utah to figure out the how to commemorate the transcontinental's completion so in 2019 that was the 150th anniversary of the railroads completion and they thought they wanted a poem. And so they came to me and they didn't know my background. This is why it is important that I'm biracial because um, my name, my parents wouldn't necessarily signal to anyone um, that I was half Chinese. And so when they came to me and said, would you write a poem about the transcontinental? I said, I'm more than happy to write you a poem about the transcontinental railroad. <laughs> because anyone who knows anything about that history knows that, especially on the Central Pacific line, about 90% of that workforce was Chinese. And they actively went out and recruited Chinese from Southern China, uh, some of the places where actually my family came from. Mm. So there's no connection personally that my family has to the railroad. But, you know, we're a Cantonese American family. And so these workers were Cantonese. And it was really important for me to be able to remember to center, I think, those stories that often get mentioned and sometimes told, but not really explored. It doesn't become the framework through which you have to see the railroad. So I created a poem that is actually a translation of a poem um, that was carved into the walls of Angel Island Immigration Station. And it's an anonymous poem written in Chinese. It's part of what they call a dialogic pair of poems. They call it their number 111 and 112. And they're carved into the walls of Angel Island to face each other. And for those oh. people out there who don't know Angel Island, I mean, it was a detention center an immigration station where Asian migrants to the United States were housed. And in the case of the Chinese, sometimes up to 22 months, because 
During the building of the transcontinental, of course, the Chinese were really eagerly recruited. But as soon as the transcontinental was completed in 1869, uh, the Chinese were pushed out of the country. Um, people didn't want them there. They were seen as a threat to white labor. They were seen as a virus. <laughs> Sound familiar? They were seen as you know a cancer on American society. And so 13 years later, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, and that stayed in effect until 1943. And that affected you know people like my family, uh, where people couldn't come over, or had to sneak through illegally, kept Chinese women out of the country. There's all, it, it changed family dynamics. So I wanted to link exclusion with the transcontinental. And I did it by taking this poem that was part of this dialogic pair that elegizes a man who committed suicide in Angel Island, a Chinese migrant who committed suicide during his detention period. I take that poem and I translate it character by character into the stories of all of the different workers and the different impacts that the railroad had on American culture. And I have to admit, I know this is a really long answer to your question. No, but this, this is this is fascinating to me. Okay, so. this is when I became this is when I became obsessed with the railroad because it turns out there's not one part of American life, and actually you could say global life, that was not touched by the railroad. What the railroad meant as a metaphor, what the railroad meant as an actual infrastructure, how the railroad changed us, um, and thought about you know, who, what it meant to be American, what it meant to work for a company, immigration law changed, unions changed, ideas of whiteness changed around the railroad, ideas of time and space even changed. So um, that's kind of like when I started realizing this is, this is actually quite a poetic thing to consider. Um, I thought it was just going to be a terrible poem about a train, but by the end of it, I was like, no, to write about the train is to write about America. Yes. See, I, I love this because what you don't know going into this is that I teach uh, Washington State history. Oh, so, wow. and, uh, wow. and, and we uh, we about three weeks ago finished our Transcontinental Railroad unit and we dealt heavily with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so this is for me, this was this is incredible because this is it's it's a newer subject to me over the last couple of years. So I'm still learning about it. So to hear to hear you talk about that was was truly fascinating for me. I love that. Well, I hope, um, I know you've already finished the unit, unit, but in future, I mean, I have a website called West, <laughs> it's westtrain.org, you know, www.westtrain.org. And basically it is that poem, the Chinese poem, and you can play with the poem. You click oh. on different characters and it opens up and um, there are videos and sound, there's music, there's documentary poems. And I did it actually for teachers like you. I wanted to make sure that everyone had access to this kind of history. Because one of the things that really struck me when I was working on this project was, you know, I grew up in Washington. I, um, you know, obviously grew up in a Chinese American family, but none of this was talked about. They didn't talk about exclusion because it was this thing that was always under the surface, but it was not something they wanted to bring up because they wanted their kids and their grandkids to be American. So they just didn't talk about these histories. And then in school, no one really talked about the transcontinental except to sort of say, well, you know, hey, you know, they united these two lines, but right. it had a massive impact and it caused all sorts of social divisions and social movements and change. And so I want people to see that. So, you know, everyone is free to go on this site and play around. The book I'm so excited. does something else, but, you know, the book and the website sort of, you know, like to me, 
as numbers 111 and 112 speak to each other as a pair, the book and the website pair up and speak to each other. That's, I, I'm, I truly am excited to go like play around on the site. And uh, this is, this is really cool. And uh, thank you for all of that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, with that said, um, I always like to talk about timelines. So mm-hmm. as someone who has kind of dabbled in several different genres, um, where did your love of writing come from in a way that um, you started realizing that writing could be fun outside of maybe writing for school and writing, you know, things that your parents maybe had you jot down here and down here? When does as my microphone starts getting wonky? Yeah. Uh, there we go. Becoming uh, a writer. <laughs> <laughs> not sure what happened there. Uh, where does your, when does your love of writing start to, and when does it become fun for you? In my life or in my day? <laughs> I guess in, <laughs> in life, where does, actually, hold on. I'm going to pull this microphone out of here. Sure. There we go. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Perfect. So in my life, I would say that writing came to me late. I thought I was going to be a visual artist for a really long time. I was very interested in maps and drawing maps, actually. I was interested in old, old maps and atlases of the ancient world. And when I was a kid and when I was in high school, I used to just draw these very elaborate maps, which sounds crazy now, but um, I just loved the way that maps were these narrative objects. And so in a way, I was interested in sort of writing at an earlier age, um, but not through the written word. I was interested in the visual representation of narrative more than I was interested in actually telling a narrative um, in that way that we think of, of storytelling or poems. And in fact, one of my my dream job was trying was going to be working for the National Geographic as one of their artistic cartographers. Like if you read the National Geographic years ago, they would always have these amazing maps of like Alexander's journey, you know, and his conquering his empire essentially. And someone had to draw those maps. And now I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be the person who, you know, drew out what Antarctica looked like. Um, that, uh, job, that job obviously never materialized, but after that, I wanted to be a journalist. I was really, and again, I was a hyper-specific dreamer. I wanted to be an editor at Harper's Magazine. Like that was my, that was to do. And um, by the end of it, you know, I, 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 I came to poetry very late, even though I was reading poetry a little bit. Um, but the reason I came to poetry at all was sort of one of the worst reasons, which is I was actually getting a very bad grade in English for the first time in my life. And I actually will blame the teacher because having taught many, many years from now, you know, (laughs) and taught in high school, I'm like, I know what a good teacher is and I know what a bad teacher was. And she was a terrible teacher. (laughs) Um, And, and so my grade, even then to me made no sense. I was like, why am I getting a B in this class that, you know, really makes no sense. So she was offering, um, she was offering extra credit for anyone who, um, submitted to a poetry contest in Seattle. It was an all city poetry contest about of all things, the Holocaust. Okay. And you know, if you, if you entered, you got extra credit. And then if you won something, which she didn't expect, no one would expect that because it's for the whole city. Right. Um, and you know, something else might happen. Like, you know, you get a donut or whatever. <laughs> so I, I entered and I won. 
the whole contest. And, and I remember she, she came, I was sitting in another class and she burst in, you know, to this class and she was so excited. She's like, you won, you won, you won. And I was like, I won what? And she goes, you won the poetry contest. <laughs> and I was baffled by it. I just, it made no sense to me because I'd never written a poem before. And though I'd read some poems, I was like, I, this doesn't sound like, <laughs> you know, and it's a high school poem. So of course it's terrible. But that actually sent me down this rabbit hole. Like, I was like, well, what is it to write? What, you know, why did I win this? I mean, I just wanted to know, like, I didn't understand. So I started reading more poetry and, and then I started writing it. I mean, because I, you start reading it, you start wanting to, to write it. And so the very first books of poetry I bought, and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I went to the university bookstore, university bookstore over at, um, on University Way in Seattle. It's like, and, and they had these great sales of, you know, their books. And so I fished out of this dollar barrel, you know, cause that's where all poetry goes. I fished out Louise Glick's House on Marshland. Oh, okay. Marshland's Winter Bells and Sylvia Plath's Ariel. I had no idea who these poets were, like no clue, not one, but they were a dollar each. And I happened to have $5. So I bought these books of poetry and went home and I read them and I shamelessly started, you know, imitating them like you know I was so taken with Louise Glick's voice and you know and I for a while I was writing these poems that made me sound like a 50 year old Polish emigre <laughs> you know and my my teachers were you know couldn't figure it out either they were like what is going on you know but um that's when it was just pleasurable it was pleasurable to sort of listen to somebody else's music and to sort of like learn how to sort of do that right um and so and ever since then, I've sort of associated writing poetry with just sort of, you know, a question, which is like, why, why, <laughs> you know, why is this this way? Why, what is this sound that I love? And, and can I play with it? I love that. Um, I really like the idea that you went from, you know, I, I like your, I like the cartography thing. I, I've only met a couple other people. One of my former students who's become a cartographer uh, and then I had a, a guitar player for a while who is one was one for the city. Um, and so it's it's fascinating. It, maps are such a they're so beautiful. I I really try to understand them, especially because I teach history, but I they're they can be really tricky. I love your experience writing travel logs and the journalism piece. And given that, you know. Well, I was taught that, you know, some of the first novels came from travel logs, if we're looking, you know, mm. really backwards. Um, where do you feel mapping and the travel log kind of what's the for you? Um, how do those two pieces find their way into poetry and vice versa? How does a travel log um, sound like poetry? Well, there's a couple of answers to that. So if you look at my biography, um, I actually have a bunch of websites. I spent a lot of time actually in the digital world for a poet. And two of them are called Mapping Literary Utah. And the other one is called Mapping Salt Lake City. And so I've taken, even though there are not necessarily literal maps, even though there are some little <laughs> designed maps on there, um, they, I allow, the, those maps are sort of hypertext or hyperlink, sorry, to, um, other kinds of projects, photo essays, things like that, or, or the work of other writers. It's a way of both archiving and mapping a place. 
by thinking about the strange connection that appears between sort of human creativity and place. Um, I don't answer what that link is, but by, you know, I have all these different writers that have produced pieces and they're on this site. And um, Mapping Literary Utah is a web archive of all Utah writers past and present, or as many as I can. There's not really all of them. I mean, there's just so many. Um, but but people start to, to, you know, by playing around with the map or looking at the different writers, they can sort of say, is there a Southern Utah voice? Is there, are there people that are, are there things that the writers in this area are particularly interested in? And I think that does start to emerge. And so it is a way of kind of mapping obsessions, other people's obsessions. So that's, that's where the mapping went. But the question about how is a travelogue like poetry is a really interesting one, because I think travelogues in general are impressionistic and they are meant to be recollection recollections of place they're me meant to be not definitive takes on a place or even one's experience but just sort of like a kind of collection of things that people have experienced as they're traveling through place and i think that that does speak to poetry in a couple of ways i mean poems are not meant to be um, at least the way I love poems. I don't think they're meant to be definitive reclamations of any kind of event or person. It's it's meant to be a snapshot. It's meant to be um, a way of entering into remembered sensation, uh, recollected in tranquility, as Wordsworth would say. And I think that that's, that's the beauty of it, that there's something about a poem that that in itself asks you to travel back in time or to travel across time through metaphor. How are two things that are not related to each other related to each other? How is it that you can be in the present reading about the past and, and, and ages and ages and ages ago in the past too, and then link that forward again back to the present? So, you know, poems are little time traveling machines, really. That's right. what they have. I love that. It in a way that the last where well, you just finished saying that there's little time traveling machines is fascinating because I, I studied a lot of uh, like 16th and 19th century British poetry is kind of my wheelhouse from college. And, and I like that because I, I always feel like, you know, you get Word, Wordsworth and Blake kind of having this battle over time and place. Um, and I think it kind of, it, it reminds me a lot of their, you know, standing on a bridge in Westminster pieces versus London um, and how they're, kind of mapping the city um, through very different lenses. And they're aware, you know, Blake and, and Wordsworth are both very aware of the change that is occurring, you know, yeah. because, you know, writing about London and, and of course, Wordsworth moved back and forth between, you know, rural spaces and city spaces. Right. And you know they were they they were not unaware of industrialization the encroachment of um a, a technological era that was going to soon subsume the world they were not uh, unaware of the the different the ways that the city would change relationships between people um right. the ways in which labor um altered you know people's relationships to their own memory and you know i think that's one of the things about the the sort of bucolic spaces that when Wordsworth goes there or when when Blake imagines you know a bucolic space that they become um places of of a different kind of freedom that allow for 
you know, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of memorialization to, to take root and to blossom. But, you know, one of the things that I always liked about Blake was that he sort of understood that you can't stay too long in any one space. Right. If it's, if it's urban, it's not that the urban is inherently a degraded space and that the, the pastoral space is inherently an elevated one. It's just that any place, if you stay too long in it, starts to crystallize and starts to become almost saccharine or too much of itself. It, it's that that fluid movement between innocence and experience, the imagination and the real, that that's, that's where the real energy comes from. You don't want to just stay in one place. And I think, you know, that time machine quality of the poem, like that's what, you know, it, you know, even as Wordsworth is sitting there on that bridge and thinking about all these parts of the city, you know, <laughs> Or he's in Tintern Abbey and then he's thinking back to his past, right? Like right. place is not there to be only one thing. It's there as a catalyst yeah. for the imagination. And that's the thing that makes up any place interesting. Yeah. And I love that too. You just made me, it, that you were, uh, as we're talking about kind of um, Blake and this, you know, continually needing to move from place to place, kind of once things are finished in this place, it's a lot like, uh, you know, you look at Thoreau's writing and Emerson's writing in that way too. And it's interesting to see the, you yeah. know, crossing the ocean that things were maybe not as different as they seemed. Yeah, I mean, what you have to remember what Thoreau said at the end of Walden, and I'm gonna butcher it, but essentially like he, he, he says, you know, the beginning of the book, you know, I, I, I had to leave, you know, I had to go out into the woods to find a different experience. And again, I'm bastardizing this, but, and at the end, he says, I left the woods for the same reason I went into the woods, which is I had to live different lives. Right. And I think that that's, that's the beauty of literature. And, you know, <laughs> the travelogue is an opportunity for the reader to live different lives. Um, the writer going and traveling, you know, lives these different lives by seeing these experiences and compiling them and then, you know, marketing to somebody else who reads them. But poems in general, like I see a collection of poems as a collection of living so many different lives, especially when we get to persona poems, um, when we move into documentary poems or anything like that, like these different kinds of poems, forms really allow for so many different voices to be heard and thus different uh, imaginative experiences to be um, not realized and, and not even fully imagined, but certainly like approached, approximated. Wow. Um, I feel like I have so many more questions to ask you and we're so close to heading toward the end. I may end up <laughs> I may end up rescheduling a time for you to come back on here because there's so much more I want to dig into. Um, I want to kind of switch gears. You also have another book coming out as well uh, with Real Toads. Um, I'm actually working on that. It will come out eventually. It's a book about how to teach and write, how to read and write poems. That's what that book is about. So it's a pedagogical book. Yeah. Right. And well, and I love that, especially given, you know, you, you've edited Best American Poetry. And so you have a, you know, you definitely have an eye for what, for what you're looking for as kind of a, a, a strong, solid poem and how to look into that. What on earth makes, and I know this is a very loaded question with a million different answers, but to you, like, what are those couple things that people don't think about when they're looking to see if their poems are, are you know, quote unquote, good poems? Like, what's, what are those things that people, you know, just are afraid to think or don't look at, or maybe don't see in themselves that you find to be attractive in a poem? 
You know, it's a great question because I have been reading a lot of poetry. I read a lot of poetry for Best American Poetry. And then I read, I mean, I've judged for the National Book Awards. I judged recently for the Pulitzers, like for this year's Pulitzers. So I've read a lot of poetry. And when you put books up against each other and you put poems up against each other, for me, it's the question of good. What makes a poem? I don't even like to use the word good anymore. I just like to use the the, the term like what is what is a poem that's truly, truly thinking? What is a poem that's truly trying to do all it can do? Because there are poems that I've loved that I could sort of say have been failures at some level, whether they're a kind of moral failure, whether they're a kind of, you know, some of the lines fall a little slack and others come to life. Um, So it's not universally, you know, polished. But one of the things that I, I, I think right now, we're in a time period where I think people are really f- afraid. They're really afraid, and and for good and bad reasons. I think they're in poems. They're afraid. I think for bad reasons. I think that they're afraid of saying something that's going to offend someone or be misread, um, and that they're afraid that they're going to be politically on the wrong side of the equation. And I feel that. Right now, we're in a time period where a lot of people are producing poems that I agree with politically 110%. Right. Not at all interested in those poems because they don't actually push forward. They don't get into a space where I feel that the writer is actually afraid to say something that has not been already predetermined, pre-sanctified, pre-approved by whatever social means, personal means, community means, whatever. I feel like there's a lot of congratulation in these poems. It's like, I'm going to tell you what you're probably already prepared to hear. And I think that's frustrating um, because for me, I think of a poem as a time machine in the sense that it also changes, you know, uh, it changes the perspective, it changes the lens, it changes the way you're going to think. So, you know, I need to know if you're going to say, well, capitalism is bad, you know, hey, fine, I'm on that page. I wrote a whole (laughs) poem book about the railroad capitalism is bad you know there's no question about that but you got to make me think in a different way about how to perceive capitalism you know you've got to make me you know perceive perceive the idea of labor itself differently you got to make me see the connection between the body and labor differently for me to actually care about that Mm. Um, and i think that that's one of the things i'm so frustrated with in poems is that you know when i think of a poem that isn't functioning finally as a poem it's shutting down the ending or it's telling me at the end of the poem what that poem meant. And I do go back to Keats and I think that about what he said about negative capability and the idea that a poem can can contain multiple, even contradictory meanings in there. And that's not a failure of the poem. That might be one of the exciting things about a poem too, which can, can we come to the poem and each time we change in our lives, go back to that poem and have a different experience of that poem because it's capacious enough to grow with us. I feel like there's a lot of poems that are not capacious enough to grow with their readers. And so once I've read that poem, there's no, no reason on earth for me to go back to it. There's just not, because I've had all the experience and all the fun I can possibly have with it. And I think for me, that's the only thing that matters. Like, can I write a poem that five, 10, 15 years down the line, people can have a different relationship with it, including one that's antagonistic, you know, where someone can, you know, I, I always want to say to my students, and I do say to my students, I'm like, if you're worried about saying the wrong thing about race or gender, you will, you have, congratulations. 
Just think five years before this, we had very different ideas about race and gender. Five years after this, very different ideas we're going to have. So you've already failed on that account. So if you've already failed, write what you have really worried about, thought about, write what makes you scared, because there's no point in being dishonest or covering up your tracks or, you know, pulling your punches in order to, 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 to make the audience feel good. You've already offended your audience. Might as well go forward. I love that. I, I can't think of a better place to close on that. Um, thank you so much for hanging out with me today on TPG20. It's been an absolute honor to have you on here. Um, I look forward to speaking with you again. And I absolutely look forward to uh, Real Toads and West. I can't wait to go play around on this website tonight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Great talking to you too. You as well. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Questions TPQ20. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week.